Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. From the book of Psalms, we will be looking at all of Psalm 73 today, but for the sake of uh, the way the sermon is structured, we're going to look at the first three verses together, and then we'll deal with the others in turn. Psalm 73, the word of the Lord, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slept. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Get all my... All right. Good morning again. If uh, you're just now joining us, for the last couple of weeks we have been uh, in this series called What If? And the controlling image is this picture of a, of a path that divides uh, just at the horizon, one side going uh, right, one side going left. And we have been going through different uh, stories in the scriptures that put in front of us the choice of faith. Because as we have been discussing the, the choice of faith, Taking the path of faith is something that we must choose repeatedly because the temptation of the false way, of the other way, is always being in front of us. Part of this series is, is motivated by the uh, recognition of Martin Luther when he posted in the 95 Theses, when our Lord said, repent, he meant that the Christian life was a daily practice of repentance which means that the, the path of faith is a renewal day by day to walk in the way of the Lord and not in the way of the world. And so we have gone through these different intersections that we as Christians face, and, and most of us face some variety of, of these intersections every day. Uh, we started the year by facing indifference, the path of, of going zealous for the Lord or going lukewarm for the Lord was placed in front of us and we considered what the, the effect, what the danger of indifference to our faith, to our growing, to our living before the Lord was. Last week, we took on the question of facing indifference. I'm sorry, sorry, facing gratification by looking at the story of Esau, the brother of Jacob, selling his birthright, being part of the promised line of the, of the Messiah for a, a bowl of stew. And we saw in that, in that story how gratification, how instant satisfa satisfaction can so easily take us away from, from the, the, the true joy of what truly lasts, the eternal company of our Lord. This week, we are moving to the question of facing envy. Now, why do I bring envy after facing gratification? Because there is a second road you can choose 
by denying gratification that is not the way of faith. You can be upright, not do those sinful things, and not go down the way of gratification, but in your heart, really be envious of those who do. And that is not the way of faith. That is simply moving the way of gratification into the heart. And so today we want to look at the way of envy versus the way of faith. This is so necessary for us to grapple with because the, the, the virtue, and I know this is ironic, but the virtue of envy is served up everywhere around us. Our culture hums and purrs and prospers on the mantra, want more. Want what that person has. Do what it takes to catch up to the person that seems to have it all, whether it be a beautiful family, a a, a beautiful house, a better car. Our entire economy is built on competition. Compete for it. Earn it. The American dream is simply this. If you work hard enough, the good life will be yours. And how do we find the good life? We're told to compare ourselves to one another. To see how our neighbors, how our friends, how the people in the pew in front of us or behind us are doing in this world. And we evaluate whether we're getting a fair shake based on those comparisons. So we have a culture that says, earn it. And then we also have this buzzsaw that we all run into somewhere, often frequently, this other message. Life is unfair. Somehow we don't get it. We don't get the good job. We don't get the better position. We don't get the health that we, that we uh, desire. We don't have the relationship we want. And when we face life is unfair in a world of earn it, compete for it, compare yourselves, we give birth to this question. Why not me? Why him? Why her? I remember my preparation for becoming a pastor was a long frustrating period. I had finished seminary, had all of the school credentials that I needed to to take on a pastorate, and my home church uh, was without a pastor. And so they called a pastor at the same time that I became credentialed to be a pastor. And so I sat in the pew in front of this guy who was about my age, similar viewpoint, similar philosophy of ministry, And I watched him week after week preach a sermon that I could knock the socks off of. And I sat there and I couldn't hear the word of God preached because I would be better in that pulpit. I would be better leading that church. I know the church better than he does. And that went on, not just for weeks, but into months and into years. 
my thoughts were just controlled with, why him and not me? Why can't I? After all, I've worked really hard. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I feel so ready. Do you struggle with envy? Are there people that you look at and you want to know, how did they get there when I would do it so much better? Why not me? Envy is extra hard when faith becomes the reason that we don't have what we want. You you experience the, the, the hardship of, because I'm a believer, I can't have the fun that I see my peers having. I can't go after the same pursuits as fun as they look that my peers go after. Because my faith has put in front of me, no, that is not where the Christian goes. It's going to get worse. The, the f- forecast of the cultural winds of this church, uh, not of this church, of this culture, is becoming more and more clear that those who choose the way of faith will also find them excluded from the best parts of culture, from the best positions, because of what you believe the Bible teaches. And so we will become more envious of what the the wicked in this world achieve and what we are denied simply for faithfulness. Christians are moving from being havers with their faith in this culture to before too long being have-notters because of their faith. And that is a recipe for a lot of envy. Do you struggle with envy? We all do, and we all will. How do we overcome envy? Psalm 73 is given to us to answer that question. In this psalm, we will see the way of envy and what we must do to take the path of faith instead. Join me as we go through this passage piece by piece. The first three verses, which we have uh, already read, is the introduction to this psalm. And it shows us in verses 1 through 3 that the way of envy is an easy temptation to the upright. The way of envy is an easy temptation to the upright. We are told that this psalm is written by a person named Asaph. We don't really know uh, anything about Asaph besides that he likes to write psalms. We can gather from some of the contextual clues of of what he is, uh, the psalms he writes, that he was a priestly person in in Israel. He lived in the the temple culture. That was his bread and butter. That was where he, he, he found himself. So he is a priest. He is is a person who is upright. He knows the word of God. He lives by the word of God. And he tells us right here in in verse 1, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, i.e. his creed, his understanding of, of the way God works, is that he is good. God is good. And he has decided that his life is to seek to live for God. But the context of this psalm is also a context of very hard times 
This psalm has likely been written during what we call the exilic period, the exilic period of Israel. You remind, I'll remind you again of our acronym CASKET to take us through the whole Old Testament. CASKET stands for creation. A stands for Abraham, that's the patriarchs, Genesis 12 through 50. S stands for Sinai, the giving of the law, which takes us through the Exodus all the way through uh, Judges. And then there's the period of the kings where we have David, and then we have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom become more and more disobedient and idolatrous, God brings the punishment of exile upon them. In 587 B.C., he is finally said to the nation of Judah, the line that the kingdom of David, that you are going in exile to Babylon. You are going to live in a foreign country. You are going to live amidst worshipers of pagan, uh, 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 of false gods. You are going to be in a pagan place. You are going to live in exile. And here we have Asaph, a righteous, upright person living in a godless land. It is a bitter, cruel time for this person. We, we, we look at uh, Psalm 137, 1 through 3, to, to understand some of the emotional torment of living in captivity. We are told, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our leers, or lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. They live in a foreign land, tormented and reminded of their exile. They are brokenhearted. Asaph is the epitome of the faithful person in a godless land. He is the one who went from having with his faith to have nodding because of his faith. And as he is in this godless land, he laments. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He sees it. He sees these godless people doing godless things and somehow getting rewarded for it, prospering. He sees the wrong and it races in his mind. It takes control. Asaph admits that he almost slipped like he is on an incline of gravel and it is just about to take him down into the valley of complete betrayal of his Lord. This is the ground that envy has put him on. Now before we get too far down the road, I think it's important to recognize that envy goes by many names. You may not describe yourself as envious, but envy wears many different names, such as jealousy, discouragement, self-pity, entitlement, a critical spirit, Being judgmental, being spiteful, being quick with anger, being whiny, 
being complaint-filled, if you're one of those people that just oozes negativity, is raging about some injustice all the time, that's envy. Resentful. Bitter. Mopey. Woe is me. It's just not fair. It's not going right for me, and it's not right. That's on the inside. That's also envy. Envy lives on the inside, and this is the dangerous part about it. It feels so good to let envy reign in your heart, and no one can see it. You can look like a perfect Christian and be racked with a devouring, envious spirit. And no one can see it. And all it does is whisper, you're so right, Nathan. You're so much better, Nathan. You can live in that land all day long. Oh, how quickly it leads to that slippery ground where you will fall out. And that is where Asaph goes. He, he begins to let his mind spin on this envy path. And I want you to know what the way of envy is named. The way of envy is named, I deserve. The way of envy is named, I deserve. His envy develops by two observations. First, he recognizes in his context, bad people prosper. Look at at this psalm with me. Who are these people that are prospering? In verses 6 through 8, he says, Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They are arrogant, unkind, self-indulgent. I mean, they're so fat, their eyes look like they're disappearing in their puffy little faces. Look at verses 9 to 11. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue stretched through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? They're blasphemous. They're high-handed. They're self-idolaters. And yet, everything about them deserves to be snuffed out like that. And yet, verses 4 and 5 They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're the beautiful people. They're the healthy people. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. These gross people have the easy life. They're successful. Verse 12 summarizes it. Behold, these are the wicked Always at ease, they increase in riches. Life is unfair. We know these people. They're those silver-spooned people that get the job on other people's work. 
They get promoted because nobody ever catches them when they're screwing up. They never get caught. It's always me. It's never them. We know this feeling. We see people all around us, left and right, succeeding and multiplying in good things while we feel like we are just running in mud. look at that and we say, I deserve that life. I deserve it. Oh, self-pity feels good. It feels right. And when we feed ourselves this envy, this self-pity, it grows like fire. Not only do bad people prosper, but the second thing we see, I'm missing out. Asaph works hard doing the right thing. It's it's not easy. He's asking the question, is it even worthwhile to walk this path of faith when it denies me all of the pleasures of this world? Is it worthwhile? Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain. I lose out and I suffer grief all the time. Verse 14, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Why do I miss out on so many good things? Why don't I get the things I want? I'd love them, Lord. I'd do well with them, Lord. We know that feeling. Life is unfair. Well, don't amen that. <laughs> Just a second. I, won't, I didn't hear it. But stop. Stop. All in vain? Your obedience is all in vain? Are you telling me that you do what you do only for rewards? Are you a dog? Your obedience is for the treat? Timothy Keller speaks on this passage in vain. This unmasks Asaph's heart. His obedience was not a way of pleasing God, but rather a means of getting God to please him. When we say to God, I'll serve you only if X happens, then it is X that we love. And God is just a necessary apparatus for obtaining it. Deserve? Deserve? I deserve? That's our internal narrative. I deserve? Who are you saying I deserve to? On what grounds do you make your case? I deserve. Are you not created? 
Is not everything that you have received been given to you as a gift? Are you not living at God's good pleasure? Every single one of your breaths only coming because he ordains that you have them? I think of Job, who goes through 30 chapters of grief at tragic circumstances, crying out, why God, why God, why God? And God finally comes to Job, and he answers Job, who has made his case on, I deserve an answer. I deserve to know why my life has turned out this way. I deserve, and this is what God begins to say. I could just end the sermon by reading the whole part, but we'll, we have more. Job 38, 4 to 7, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for glory, what's God saying to this Job who is complaining about life being unfair? He's saying, on what grounds do you have to complain about your life to me? I created you. You depend upon me. I am God. You are not. You deserve nothing. And yet, I deserve. This road, this path of envy, quit thinking you're on the high road. It is the road of self-idolatry. You are just as much promoting your own righteousness and right to have things as the wicked people you despise. Do not be fooled. The envious heart is just as godless as the one it judges. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, not me. Impurity, not me. Sensuality, no. Idolatry, no. Sorcery, no. Enmity, no. Strife, no. Jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Seems like there's a lot of stuff in there that's not just not me. Now, what does Paul say after listing off these sins? I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The road of envy justifies you and feels so right. But Paul's words say, if the road of envy is the road you are on, you are on the road to hell. 
get off that road now. And that's what Asaph does at verse 15. If I had said this, I will speak thus. So far, this has just been an exercise. He says, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have forsaken my faith. Asaph catches himself before going any further. Now listen where his mind changes, verses 16 and 17. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Until. That's the great hinge word of this psalm. That is the turning point from where Asaph goes on the road of envy and hell to turning to the road of faith. You see, we leave the way of I deserve only by taking the way of worship. And so the way of faith is named God is good. This is the way that saves us from the way of envy. The way of faith is named God is good. In God's sanctuary, Asaph's paradigm is fixed. He finds peace and happiness again because he becomes settled with two realities. First, God will bring justice. All of these mysteries, all of these inconsistencies about the life that the wicked are living versus the life of the righteous, God will bring justice. There is an end to the wicked. There is an end to those who choose their own way. We do not evaluate God's justice in this particular instance. We need to recognize that God's justice has an eternal length to it. And in eternity, the righteous will be justified and the unrighteous will receive their judgment. And the only way we can understand that is never going to come by comparing ourselves left and right. It is only going to be by looking up to the God who rules the heavens and the earth. The godless will meet God's justice, if not now, then in eternity. Asaph says in verse uh, 20, they will end like a dream. And so do not waste your energy judging others. Beloved, God's got a handle on it. The second thing Asaph rests on is that God is my portion Listen to verses 21 to 24. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Listen, the wicked may have many things, but they don't have God. And if that doesn't switch it around for you, how brutish are we to be jealous of people who don't have God? (laughs) 
God, infinite, beautiful, and full of glory is our reward. Verses 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Beloved, God offers himself in the gospel to you without reservation. If you are feeling deprived, you are not chasing God hard enough because he gives himself to you. How do I know he gives himself to you? Because God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God is better than the best good in this world, and gaining God is worth losing everything in this world. If you have not come to that, it is because you have not come to God. Because he is so satisfying. How can we have time to envy others when we have been invited to worship the infinite God? Anytime and all the time. Now, I want you to note before we get to what is going to say, sound like the word conclusion, but that can only just be the beginning. The psalm, this is important because I know that there are people here who wrestle. The psalm does not condemn the hard observations, it does not condemn the fact that Asaph entertained doubts. It's okay. You have questions. You have doubts. You have hard realities you're trying to make sense of with your faith and with the world that you see. The psalm does not condemn those thoughts. Doubts are not sinful. Where the sin lies is when you keep them from God. When you choose to go into your doubt, to go into your self-pity, to go into your envy, and become your own justifier. Rather than saying, God, I don't understand this. I'm taking this to the sanctuary. I want to worship you, even though I am confused. That person will find God is good. Asaph's word to you is bring your doubts to God. So the conclusion of this psalm and the conclusion of this sermon must be this. I choose to be near God. Asaph circles back to the creed that he started with in verse 1 where he said, God is good. But now he puts upon it a twist. Listen to verse 27. For behold, uh, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. God is good was a creed that was on his lips. But at the end of the psalm, that creed has been planted into his heart. 
God is good, and therefore it is good to be near God. He is now a man who pursues and practices his creed. It's not simply a said creed. It is a lived, heartfelt, experienced creed. He chooses the path of faith. I lived in awful envy of my previous pastor while I sat under him, and that would have continued and never healed until I discovered I'm supposed to pursue God. How did I forget that? But as I pursued God, my envy melted away, and I was able to discover I've got a pretty great pastor up in my old church. Not as good, but no. (laughs) God sorted that out eventually. No. Beloved, Envy withers when we seek our satisfaction in God alone. So, beloved, come into the sanctuary. Worship him. Listen to him. Dwell with him. Let him nourish you with his goodness. As Peter said in his first epistle, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. As we conclude this sermon, I want to finish with a a final illustration for how the path of faith can overcome the path of envy by setting our mind and heart upon knowing God is good. I want us to see this by considering the testimonies of two individuals that were dealt one of the most cruel and horrific blows this world can deliver, becoming paralyzed and living in that condition for decades. I believe these testimonies contrast the way of envy and the way of faith. Think of your triggers to envy in these stories. The first is a man from Spain, Ramon San Pedro. On August 23, 1968, he dived off a rock ledge and became a quadriplegic. He was 25 at the time. The accident made him full of grief and anger as his life was reduced to a vegetative existence. He was supposed to have so much more, right? He endured in this condition for decades, publishing a book on his suffering titled Letters from Hell. Certainly, his anger and bitterness is easy to understand. Who can blame him? Soon, his only goal in life was to find a way to kill himself. He petitioned the courts to legalize euthanasia, but they would not. Finally, after enduring 28 years of paralysis, he was able to get a group of friends to help fulfill his desire. They prepared a vial of cyanide in a cup in front of him with a straw. He had his moment of taking the poison videotaped. His last words to the world, when I drink this, I will have renounced the most humiliating of slaveries being a live head stuck to a dead 
body. A tragic story. But sympathizable. I mean, does it get any worse? San Pedro could not escape the unfairness of life. So he took his life into his own hands. He destroyed himself. What other choice does life give when it deals such a cruel blow? Incidentally, one year before Ramon San Pedro's tragic diving accident, another one happened. On July 30th, 1967, a young athletic woman dove into the Chesapeake Bay. She misjudged the water's depths and ended up being paralyzed from the shoulders down. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. After that injury, like San Pedro, she battled with anger and envy and bitterness and depression and doubt. But remarkably, instead of turning into her grief, she drew near to God. Last summer, she marked her 52nd year of living with her paralysis. And so I would like us to listen to her testimony as she reflects on 52 years paralyzed. Hi, I'm Johnny. And I am shaking my head wondering, how did I get here? 52 years in a wheelchair is a a long time. I mean, even Jesus thinks so. In John chapter 5, the Lord was at the pool of Bethesda, remember that? And he stopped by a man on a straw mat who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And it says, quote, when Jesus learned he had been in this condition for a long time. That's what it says in verse six. And when I read those words, a long time. I mean, tears filled my eyes. Because man, if Jesus thinks that 38 years of paralysis is a long time, what's he think of 52 years? Yeah, I think he probably says it's a long time, and so do I. And yes, every day I'm wasting away. Uh, You've heard about the recurring cancer and those new problems with my lungs and pain. And our bodies are just fragile. But I am still on the growing side, the strong side. Because like the Bible says, I'm growing in two directions at the same time. Outwardly, I'm wasting away. But inwardly, man, I'm being renewed day by day. My body may be unraveling, but my spirit, my, my, my measure of faith, and my assurance of salvation, my sensitivity to sin, my confidence in the word of God, my hope of heaven, compassion for others with disabilities, my love of Jesus, everything about my spirit is growing. Sure, I'm weaker physically, but I grow stronger spiritually. Deep, great trials bring with them deep grace from God, all of which enlarges our soul's capacity for Jesus. And that's what I'm celebrating on my accident anniversary. So join me in the celebration. Help me here at Johnny and Friends, would you? Share this wonderful message of being renewed in Christ day by day. Help me share with many more people with disabilities all around the world. God bless you for listening and caring and being a part of Johnny and Friends. Beloved, I chose this because I think that's the worst case. 
I don't think anyone here has envy. It's more justifiable than Johnny Erickson taught us. Beloved, if God, as Johnny's portion, is enough to defeat her anger and envy and to fill her with joy, purpose, and hope, then the path of knowing God is good enough for defeating whatever envy you struggle with. Say to your envy, bitterness, and resentment, I don't need you. I have God. For me, it is good to be near God. Have you drawn near to him? I have only preached a message of comfort if you have come to Christ. Have you laid your life broken and sinful and not measuring up down in front of God and say, I want Jesus. I want my life to be for Jesus. I want him as my Lord and Savior. Jesus is enough. Do that. And there is nothing you will ever say I lost out on because you will have God. And that makes you rich beyond belief. Let us all choose the path of faith. God is good. Amen? Now, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.